Clayton, the set photographer for Man of Steel and future Superman, Batman endeavor, and you're listening to Kind of Epic Show. You listen to the Clay one? No, I haven't listened to it yet. Really? Yeah. Aren't you going to put that up tonight? Yeah. Like, I don't know how good it is. <laughs> Meh. It'll be up. We're recording an intro now, so... Oh, wait. Are we? Yeah. Oh, damn it. You did find a way to do that thing yeah. that you do. Just catch you when you're not paying attention. Oh, okay. Well, that is that is, that is is uh, a thing that happens. Hey, have you guys heard that cute little chuckle? That's my girlfriend. You got a cameo. No. She chuckled. Yeah. Do we have credits? I don't know. Maybe we should have credits. Can you have audio credits? What? Why? I don't know. Like the slow crawl in Star Wars. It's a thing. Nerds like slow crawl credits. Do we? I think. Maybe. Introduce the uh, <laughs> interview before I go to titles. Okay, thank goodness. Um, well, yes. See if you if you'd done this earlier, I could have just just went straight to it. But yeah, um, we we have a really interesting interview. Um, in part, this is very timely. I, I think that it's it's kind of an interesting thing that happens is whenever we talk to Clay Enos, um, an interesting announcement will happen regarding the DC universe. Right. Well, the day that we did it. Or what was it? The day after they, yeah, they cast Cyborg. Cyborg, and then it was like a day after that they, they they'd announced the the picture of Wonder Woman. The test photos of, of Wonder Woman were out there, although they're not going to be circulating ever. Oh, I didn't see those because they will never be circulating ever. Oh. It wasn't actually Gal Gadot in the costume. It was somebody. It was just people who were like stand-ins, uh, and it was Batman, Superman, and and Wonder Woman together in costume. And Zach, Zach Snyder, no, no, Zach Snyder has it in his office. Yeah, it's like an inspiration thing yeah. in his office. We knew that. I knew that before. Yeah, it was like the day is like that was around the same time that we were talking to him though. Uh, as you're driving up to C2. So yeah, the audio quality is going to be a little bit weird. I think mostly it's just going to seem like a very pleasant hum as if we were recording it in a factory in Detroit. But um with where they're filming. But we weren't. Although he was in Detroit I believe at the time of our talk. Hmm possibly from the set the first time we talked to him we never put the the audio out there but the first time we talked to him was actually from Zack Snyder's office on the WB lot yeah we thought we were total we thought it would have been like a thing we we finally got around to asking him about man of steel because this was in 2011 and the the day that we interviewed him there was the day that they announced the casting of Henry Cavill and the just really green light the whole project and he was there when that happened Hmm. And then we got the call from Zack Snyder's office the day of that. For, wish that number hadn't been blocked. <laughs> it wasn't. No, it wasn't? No. Oh, well, maybe we should have told him that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, yeah, this time around, we get to talk to, to somebody who's, who's doing some great work. Um, he's not just um, a set photographer. I mean, he's really, a, in the truest sense of the word, kind of a, a jet um, jet setting adventurer. Um, kind of a modern... Um, you ever see, did you see what Life of Walter Mitty? No, I didn't. He's kind of like the guy in that. He's just, I mean, really. He's ben Stiller? No, 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 not Ben Stiller, because Ben Stiller is kind of just not doing anything. He's the guy that inspires Ben Stiller to go out and do stuff. Oh. That's how it is for Clay. So he's Sean Penn. He's Sean Penn, yeah. Okay. I never saw the movie. That's good. Was it? Yeah. I heard mixed things. Yeah. This is a really weird intro now that I think about it. So, well, so here's our interview with Sean Penn. I mean, playing Enos. I wanted to say
say first, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for, for coming on and for, for your patience here. Um, essentially, uh, for, for people who are, are unfamiliar, we're speaking with Clay Enos, um, who is a photographer, and I think it might even be fair to call you adventurer, sir. <laughs> I like that. Photographer slash adventurer. So uh, essentially, um, the we had our a conversation, and part of the reason we wanted to talk to you around our hundredth week, uh, our hundredth episode uh, anniversary, is that um, you were one of the first uh, kind of in-depth conversations that we we had that kind of inspired us to want to do a podcast, and uh, it got started of all things talking about coffee <laughs> and your uh, your connection with the the organic coffee cartel that you started. Do you mind telling folks uh, about um, kind of the inspiration behind that and and that? Um, photo uh, uh, excursion that you went on, kind of studying where where uh, coffee culture comes from, or where um, what we kind of take for granted comes from. Yeah, you know what, what ended up happening was, as, as you stated, my adventurous proclivities uh, got the attention of a coffee importer, and he had invited me to come along on a trip to uh, what they call Origin in Oaxaca, Mexico, where coffee comes from, under that particular coffee. And uh, I jumped at the chance. Even though he couldn't pay me, I, I knew that if at least he covered my expenses, I was in for a, a treat. And on that trip were a number of what I refer to as the coffee Illuminati. And uh, I learned a ton and was really inspired by that world. So much so uh, that I was able to, or, or sort of finagled a way to start up a little coffee company online called at organiccoffee.com. Uh, it, it's a secondary effort, obviously my primary experience is photography, but it's a way for me to sort of directly uh, immerse myself in that world that I was so inspired by and continue to be inspired by. And then one day, if I ever put more attention towards it, I could maybe grow that business as a kind of uh, retirement vehicle. Right now, though, it's a, it's a labor of love and a, something I do just for the for the love of coffee and what it stands for as a way of uh, leveling out the world. I was really surprised, I mean, learning more about coffee. You had one of the most expensive blends and, like, it's considered maybe the best coffee in the world. You had Esmeralda for, for a little while that you were actually offering. Like, it, can I you, did. Can you explain to people, yeah. like, how kind of awesome that is, because I don't think that that is something that, that people will get just off the bat. Well, I mean, coffee suffers on some level from you know, uh, a different relationship with the public. Uh, unlike wine that over centuries has matured and become this beverage that people accept uh, to pay more for, and the great pricing is independent of any kind of commodities exchange. Coffee isn't like that. It was very much a kind of colonial uh, driven thing. And the beverage and the people who grow it just didn't bring the, have the same allure. Uh, perhaps because of its effects, I don't know. But, but the point is, it, it only now with, with this sort of third wave of coffee are people realizing that 
flavor profiles and particular characteristics of any given coffee are worth paying a premium for. And the Esmeralda, the Peterson family in Panama, is one of those coffees. They've just really stumbled upon something very, very special with their varietal, uh, their climate, and all the rest of it. But all of the same vocabulary that wine can use to discuss itself, coffee can too, and that's increasingly becoming known to the world. And as a result, uh, pricing structures are moving accordingly. It's not just uh, you know, a commodity grown by folks far, far away and consumed just during the day. It's much more than that, the culture, etc. It was interesting just because, like, we're, as Americans, I think we get so used to the idea that if it's got a lot of caffeine, it must taste really strong. But, like, it's it's really weird because, like, the lighter the, the taste of the coffee, like, the higher the caffeine content. So I ordered that Ethiopian blend from you guys, and I'm like, oh, this tastes like a, it's like a nutty thing. It's weird. It didn't taste like what an American would think a coffee would taste like. And then I was more wired than I think possibly I have ever been <laughs> afterwards. So I mean, it's yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting lighter, experience. I highly recommend like every every blend that you guys have. Yeah, lighter roast will just have more coffee, and then also the way you brew it. An espresso, which is thought to have the most caffeine, is in fact the least caffeinated as a rule, uh, just because the amount of time that the water is in contact with the, the beans. So, but then a slow, like, French roast, excuse me, a um, French press and a light roast will probably get you into the stuff. It's, uh, again, that, and that, all of these things, unlike alcohol, are fairly subjective to the, uh, to the consumer. Right? Generally, 5% or 5% alcohol is going to have the same effects on people, but caffeine can really, uh, have various effects on various people. Some people are really quick to metabolize it, others aren't. Some people like it, some people don't, don't prefer not to. It makes them nervous. Now the and reason... For the flavor profiles, sorry to keep going, but flavor profiles, again, they really run the gamut. You can get fruits and nuts and vanilla. I mean, it's, it's endless, both by region or even sub-region. I think the, the interesting thing, and part of the reason that we were talking about, about coffee or we were interested in what is ostensibly a nerdy podcast, <laughs> although I think we will definitely be drawing in some some coffee, uh, some uh, what is some sommelier? We'll get some coffee nerds on here. But um, is that you created uh, for for Watchmen? You created something that's in the comic book and in the movie. You made it real. You made a night owl dark roast, and you actually <laughs> sent it in like a Viet coffee can. Like, what was the the process of, of creating that? Well, I, that actually got me a little bit of trouble. Oh no, <laughs> I didn't know about that. I had intended it as an homage to uh, the 80s and to the era of Washington and, and traded a little bit in the chocolate nut visual vernacular. Uh, the Italian conglomerate that currently owns chocolate nut coffee proceeded to sue me. So I was uh, out and, and I then had to destroy all of that coffee and packaging. Oh my god, so, uh, I had a better collector's it, item than I realized. <laughs> you did, right. It, 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 yeah, it ended up costing me quite a bit of money and heartbreak and say uh, la vie, but that is also a study in lazy design, right? I was sitting quietly doing it by myself and really wasn't aware of the kind of multinational consequences that 
that it was going to bring. That said, and I don't, um, I don't want to dwell on negativity, but I think that there, we live in an era of where the law supersedes common sense. If they had just asked me to change, you know, to take it off the market or do something, I would have been happy to. But instead, they sued me, Warner Brothers, and DC Comics really as a way to arm twist and get product placement in movies and stuff. I was a, a tertiary participant, but I got, I felt it the most. Mm. The, the, we, again, we live in a world where where the law gets used for agendas way outside justice. And uh, c'est la vie. I'd say one of the interesting things uh, about that, though, is at least you're like, oh, well, it's pretty true to life. <laughs> it was at least it legitimately looked like a real, a real, uh, a real throwback. I thought that was the cool thing about it is like it felt like when I because I, I did buy the the collector's tin that you had, and unfortunately it got swiped because I, I was I I was not one of those people who was like I'm never opening this. I was like I really want to try this, and I brought yeah. it to my work and we we made the essentially we we used it as like a communal thing. We we as a as a call center used it for like two weeks or so and then somebody swiped the tin <laughs> somebody swiped the awesome collector's tin that you made ah uh, no i was yeah, heartbroken really where the, that was where the value was and it was real it was real high quality specialty coffee i wasn't gonna skin on that yeah. but you know i can't um i i uh i am fond i have fond memories of that process and i lessons were learned and in the end you know watchmen was such a fun property to be part of. Uh, some some took offense, I think, and just uh, they were. It was like another spin-off or another way to monetize a movie and a comic book that is precious. But I was really just doing it to move some high quality coffee. I wish more movies had coffee tie-ins. <laughs> but anyway, like, can we talk yeah. a little bit about Watchmen? Because you didn't just make the the coffee; you were the set photographer. And you also produced um, a book of, of art um, that was related to the film. And if, if people haven't seen it, it's an amazing, uh, amazing compliment. If the, anybody is a fan of Watchmen, the graphic novel, or Watchmen, the, the movie, especially the movie, it's, it's just a, a really beautiful book. Um, it's a coffee table book. And um, just can you talk a bit about the, the process? Or when did you know you were going to be on the, on the set? And... How did how did the the book develop? Because that seems like a, a rare thing to, to have these days. Um, a coffee table, anything, but really um, something that's directly tied to a film like that is, frankly, it's caught on. But it was not not all that common a couple of years ago. Well, you know, I I think that real credit goes to Watchmen, the graphic novel, that publication and that work of art really set a standard. In, in the world. And so being part of a film version of it and a much tried and a, you know, a, a very difficult graphic novel to bring to screen, I was really just plain lucky to be part of it. I have a personal relationship with the Snyders and that goes back to college. So that was why I was asked to participate. I'd never shot on a movie set before. And so I went in with a kind of naivete and enthusiasm that seems natural to me. And as a result of being on set, I was inspired by all of the work that was being done by all the various folks and portraiture being a, a personal 
way of expressing myself was a natural thing to do on set. There I was, surrounded by incredible background characters, incredible lead characters, and even crew that caught my eye. And since filmmaking offers a certain amount of, or a certain pace, I was able to bring some of my own artistic effort to that set. So aside from just doing my PR responsibilities, I was making portraits. Now, again, with the setup being that, that Watchmen is such a important work, the filmmakers knew that they could probably pull off an art of book or a, some sort of book that supported the kind of like a DVD extra version in print. Um, and the portrait was also pitched and Titan Books chopped at the bit to publish it. I, quite honestly, I was amazed. Uh, it's very difficult for photographers to get published, uh, especially in works with their name on the spine and, and entirely dedicated to their work. And sure enough, it was because of Watchmen and because of the amazing work of costumers and the like that I was able to see this thing happen. 220 pages of black and white portraiture. There aren't legends of photography with books that big. Here I am with one. I think one of the interesting things about that is, I mean, in terms of PR responsibilities, it extended uh, in some ways a little bit further than, than just your average, like, stills that get released to the media. You ended up really doing a lot in terms of crafting the, the poster designs, which I think are, have become really iconic. And also the, um, um, you kind of interestingly, like, you take film, or you take uh, photos that are a part of, it's an, it's an actual piece of iconography from the graphic novel, that you have to make. <laughs> you ended up making a photo that's in the film and is actually an important plot point. Yeah, I mean, it, it is fun to do that. And that was probably more thrilling on some level than the PR stuff or, or even the portrait because it, there it was 40 feet tall uh, in a movie. And, and that's really the thing that lasts forever, whether it's uh, Rorschach, Mugshot, or otherwise. That's a really fun thing that I continue to do, and that I do in large part because of my relationship with that. And certainly, movie posters are always fun because of their their iconic status. I mean, I, I don't know how old you are, but I grew up in an age where the 12-inch vinyl album covers were the stuff of my imagination, and, and just would stare at them and listen to the music for hours. This kind of visual encapsulation of something uh, is what a movie poster is, and it's really an honor to be able to make those, too. Not, not normal, actually, for a unit photographer to also make the poster. So, again, credit to my relationship with the Snyders. And um, talking about, in particular, the, I mean, because you have the Rorschach, like you said, that, that portrait is really famous now, but then the, um, in the film, the Minutemen photograph, the, the black and white, is that actually you who's snapping the, uh, the photo in the movie? <laughs> Yeah, in the actual film, there is an actor playing a Ouija-esque man with the, you know, with the vintage flashballs, etc. But the photograph, he isn't actually making a photograph. Uh, they took my picture and then we printed accordingly to make it look vintage. 
Yeah, we were joking, um, I think, the first time we talked. I, I didn't talk about the kind of extraordinary circumstances of the first time we talked. We also had issues with that. We've had, we've had a tough time talking today, but that time um, we were talking, and it was the week that, like, Spider-Man, or, I mean, sorry, Superman, was really starting to go full throttle, and they'd announced the casting of Henry Cavill. And you're, we were talking, we asked our first question about that. We knew you couldn't talk very much about it. And then your phone, we thought you had hung up <laughs> because your phone had died. And you ended up giving us a call back from the Warner Brothers lot, like after they had inked the deal. And I thought that was an amazing, amazing set of circumstances. That was a really fun day for us to, uh, in terms of uh, just getting to talk to you and, and really amping up the, the anticipation for the movie. But I mean, I'm tying that in because that was... We were joking at the time that you, I mean, if you were going to play like Jimmy Olsen, <laughs> because essentially that was going to be your role on, on the Superman set. And I wanted to ask about about um, filming the uh, the Man of Steel. What what was it like knowing that that um, the Daily Planet or that um, photography or that uh, just news just because it's a newspaper that that was actually had a lot of potential there. That that was something that might also be integrated into the film. Like in terms of um, in terms of making the, the shot that, say, a Jimmy Olsen type would make. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, trying watching it back in, I find there's a certain irony in my first film being about superheroes and, and, and vigilantes, or superheroes as vigilantes, and now taking myself completely seriously on the set of Man of Steel, and, and uh, in this world, in this upcoming Batman, Superman, there's, there's, it's not lost on me that uh, my real introduction to graphic novels and comic books was Watchmen, and now I'm sort of having to wrap my head around this other illusion. Uh, that probably got me more flummoxed than uh, any kind of Daily Planet, uh, you know, in the Olsen style photography. It is, uh, it is amazing that I can stand next to Superman and, uh, and see him as a legitimate character given my introduction to that world. Did you ever, I mean, uh, since you, I mean, I know we talked the first time as well, that you're like, I, not a, you're like, yeah, I wasn't really into coffee. You go on this big adventure and you're like, yeah, maybe I should start a coffee company. And then the, you know, eh, I don't really ever read a graphic novel. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm doing Watchmen? That's great, yeah. How how do you luck into these things, and can we bottle that and sell it because it'll it'll do great? I, yeah, I I don't know. That happens that happens a lot to me, or at least the the luck that I've had in my life. First time doing a lot of things, being the absolute best, um, or, or uh, I, I look a long time ago. I set myself on a course that was fairly unorthodox. I wasn't interested in necessarily following the herd. And while that that can present challenges and uh, and rewards, I'm I'm just lucky. Okay, I, I I move with a certain passion that I think precedes me and, and maybe some obstacles. I don't want to start sounding like this is a add to the secret, you know, or whatever, but I don't, I think that if you really do pursue your passion, that, that a lot of stuff will move out of the way, literally and figuratively, because you're, even when you come to a challenge, if you're still in love with what it, 
what it is, that challenge can be enjoyable. And certainly working on a movie set, The Watchmen as a first, as a debut, was immensely challenging. I was completely exhausted when it was over, thinking I would never do that again. And yet, here I am. You're on book number three, <laughs> and film number four, yeah. so yeah. Exactly, and this, the latest uh, book that was produced with Chock-A-Block with my stuff is the 300 Rise of an Empire book, and it's just gorgeous. Again, testament not so much to my photography, but to the beautiful layout that the filmmakers actively participated in. And, and I'm, I, in a sense, shoot, shot that stuff a year ago, and then I'm gifted this magnificent book uh, that really tells the story and a glimpse of what it is to make a movie. I have to ask, like, it's, it's really strange because the most of, uh, several of the films that you, you've done these books for, and I think what, what fascinates people is that they're behind the scenes of these very interesting practical and special effects, mostly visual effects, but, like, there's not always that much of a set. <laughs> like, you, especially for, like, Sucker Punch or for, for 300, which, for 300, I mean, it's famously lacks a set. And so what, what is it like to just have these weird, scantily clad dudes walking around a giant green screen all day? Like, it's got to be a surreal experience. It is, and yet we as humans, we baseline to normal pretty quickly. So, so going to work every day on the green screen and, and on the bow of the front of a ship of a Greek tyrene or something was, was, became normal pretty quickly. Uh, it was seeing the film that I was doubly impressed by all the work in the Viz Effects department. And there was little more than a garden hose on set every day. And sure enough, the whole movie takes place at sea. It, it's absolutely stunning what happened. So again, day to day, you just get used to your green world. And, um, and for me, I look for any angle that can give me as little of that as possible, picking up on any set pieces that are going to work so that any Photoshop extravaganza that happens later can at least be uh, sort of on their side. In, in a similarly joking vein, because again, when the fact that like there's so little clothing, and there's so much action, like I have to ask, were there ever any wardrobe malfunctions on set? Just jokingly, because <laughs> it seems ridic- like it seems like a ridiculous amount of jumping and running around for like somebody who's just wearing a loincloth, essentially. <laughs> I think. No, I think they were all, if there was, I was unaware of it, and uh, yeah, I think that the wardrobe department had that under control. I can just so. imagine how annoying that would have been, just like, you're wasting thousands of dollars of our time. <laughs> thousands of dollars, somebody put a new camera, a roll of film in there. <laughs> no, I think it's all right. Actually, the, I have sympathy for the stunt guys who had to, you know, hit the deck wearing little stuff that you can't hide past. Uh, if you're otherwise shirtless, so kudos to them. Yeah, that's that's probably getting hit a lot with swords, fake or not. Ouch! <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's I mean, that's an interesting experience. Had the deck of the ship sometimes, you know, had skies as wood, but uh, they still hit hard. The, the women on that film as well seem like just must have been incredible uh, subjects for portraiture for Ava Green. I mean, so you have a Bond girl that you're photographing and, and Lena Haiti. So, though, I mean, that's just, those are two just 
I mean, there's a reason that they're in so many wonderful fantasy films. <laughs> make the make everything seem otherworldly. There. I mean, just is there? But you've done a lot of celebrity for, uh, uh, photography, so I just want to kind of couch it in that. Who who would be like the favorite um, favorite portraiture that you've done, um, celebrity wise, or even like on set? What was your favorite um, kind of portrait sitting that you you were able to to get? Look, I I get asked about favorites a lot, and I have real trouble with that kind of question. And that's not that's just because I don't live in a world where things get ranked, right? I know that that's a really popular way to do things on on the the website. You know, want to call out the top ten this or that. I I just I I think that. Everyone who's in front of me is has my paramount attention, and my and so there. The, the person I'm photographing is my favorite. <laughs> After I make it, I don't really pay much attention. I I am. It's a it reflects itself in the disaster of hard drives that that are my library or makes up my library. Uh, I'm much more interested in what I'm going to do next than to look back. So, so I may have, I may have had some great experiences shooting various people, or, or even the stress of trying to get somebody at the last minute uh, with only three minutes and not wanting to disturb their performance or otherwise to get a portrait that is otherwise kind of personal. I that contribute and is all part of making the photograph but to say that this one or that one is better or more enjoyable or a favorite is really hard for me. That's a long way of saying I can't really answer that. Yeah. I would be very intimidated to interrupt Lena Hades' performance. I mean she's killed people for less on Game of Thrones. <laughs> That's true. Look, I think the the women in three hundred, both films, steal the show. And I, I remember when I first saw uh, three hundred that that everyone was raving about uh, Jerome Butler and while his performance is terrific it was Lena that, that to me was the strongest character and similarly so in the rise of an empire I think Eva steals the show and, and I uh, it's testament to a lot not just their performances but to the screenwriting the narrative in, in general and, uh, and maybe just my own my own Interpretation. So, yeah, and photographing her look, she's, she's quite, she's quite reserved. She keeps to herself, or she was in our on our set. Uh, nothing but, but polite and soft-spoken. So to, to ask her to pose for me was only a, a, a little bit of an intimidating thing to do. And yet, her she's always very gracious, and we made our portrait. But I was always keeping it short. I didn't want to wear out my welcome. Was that a Tyrion Joe Clay? Because I give you credit for that one. <laughs> Is that what? Was it, you said she, she always kept it short. <laughs> oh, forgive me. I'm going to get so much flack for that one. My, my producer is already, like, rolling his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Look, it's, it's fun to see a film just how commanding what was a very understated performance on the day for me standing there, you know, trying to be self uh, in my efforts to see just how wonderfully powerful she translates on screen. I don't think my portraiture does her filming performance justice, but 
that's uh, not necessarily for me to judge. Now, talking about uh, strong, I mean, uh, women or women who steal the show. I know, obviously, you can't talk very much about about what you're currently doing on on Batman Superman since it's it's still very early in the production, and um, I'm pretty sure that DC would be able to come out and and murder all of us. <laughs> but I did want to see. Um, what is it like? I mean, they, they have talked right now about, and Zach has talked talked pretty glowingly about the kind of test footage that they're doing for for the the costumes and different runaround things. Like, is it something where you could at least comment on on as you say, just like how awesome it is to just be on set and be like, oh, like I'm standing next to Superman, or I'm standing next to somebody who's dressed as Wonder Woman for the first time, and this is going to be on screen. Like, this is going to make this is going to make like millions of little girls like insanely happy. Yeah, and, and men too, I suspect. There, there, is, there is something very special. And I remember on the set of Man of Steel, there was a scene that shows up in the end of the movie. I don't remember exactly when we filmed it, but, but Henry was there in full costume. And it was a moment that I guess would feel like an eight-year-old going to see Santa Claus. You know, they, you have this image in your head of certain things, whether it's the Taj Mahal, the Ice Tower, the Mona Lisa, the Empire State Building, and then the, and then there you are in front of it, and it's it's shocking. And sure enough, there I was, even though it wasn't my first day of filming, and I'd seen Henry in costume a dozen, dozens of times, not hundreds, but that day, you, you wanted to sit on his lap and tell him what you wanted for Christmas, right? <laughs> he, is, he is Superman. And it is really, really impressive. And, and, and again, as I stated earlier, coming from the Watchmen sensibility, it's even that much more impressive how much Henry is Superman. And uh, the costumes are incredible, and it's really nice to work with Michael Wilkinson. Now I can say Academy Award nominee Michael ah. Wilkinson again. Now, what, I mean, so is it is it something where... Um... Because is it something where you think that it'll make it into the book, like uh, different drafts of those costumes? Like, because that is one of the the interesting things that people enjoyed about the behind the scenes thing is just seeing the the thought process that they're able to expand upon because of your photography. Yeah, well, look, I I'm not I shoot a lot of that stuff. I sculpt around the costume department, and and uh, I don't necessarily leaf through their binders, but if something's out and it catches my eye, I'll I'll make pictures of it. And it's not necessarily up to me editorially how they get used, but you can be sure that I'll I'll make try and make interesting images of every aspect of the making of a film, and, and certainly costume and costume iteration is fascinating, especially at the nerdy level, right? It is it is neat to think that there is debate and argument over the height of Batman's ears or the the of the lift that is, you know, on Superman's chest. So it's, uh, that's super cool, but how it gets, if it gets seen and how it gets seen is a little outside my wheelhouse. But you'll be darn sure that I'll be making photographs, whatever I <laughs> We're really excited to, to hear that. And, I mean, have, has they already announced whether you'll be getting a book for, uh, for uh, Superman Batman yet, or...? No, that stuff, that stuff again is outside of my uh, pay grade, so to speak. But I, I think you can assume that something will be made. It tends, if the track record of cool films is to be uh, 
any guide, one can assume at least one book will come of it. I, I have, I you know, I can imagine um, more, but that may be selfish and optimistic, <laughs> which, which I've been um, maybe accused of here and there. Gosh, I mean, we ladder. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, really appreciate your time. We want to keep you uh, too much longer here. Just really like one or two more questions uh, on 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 the um, just the aspects of being uh, on a set for I mean, doing set photography. How I mean, how much do you have to just kind of blend into the background, like and, uh, when when you're taking the candid shots? Like, how difficult is that when people are already aware that there are maybe a dozen cameras already trained on them? I've said it before that it's a difficult job on a number of fronts. One is you're the only person on set not making the movie. So you really need to tread lightly. Should, should there be any need to clear the set or if an actor is otherwise uncomfortable or just needs to, to focus, they can only shoot one guy away. And that's me. Uh, so that's, that's a hard thing to reconcile. The other is that because the movie is being made with, and the entire aesthetic is dedicated towards the film camera, by standing of even a few feet off that axis, my photograph looks very, very different than the, the magnificent chemistry of the film. So those two things are really hard for me to deal with, but I have to also understand that my place is not. You know, I, I'm a part of the PR machine. My, my artistic inkling have to be reserved to portraiture and, and uh, behind-the-scenes curiosity, more so than trying to render the film as it is, right? So uh, if they really want there's a perfect book or image in the movie, they'll probably pull it from the film itself. My stuff is supportive, and I just need to check my ego accordingly. And then I wanted to ask um, kind of about the, the art world that you, you're uh, a part of and some of the people who work with you on Organic Coffee Cartel on the really creative packaging that you guys put together. Um, we're, we're kind of uh, fans of, of Alex Pardee who did a lot of, of work with you um, in large part because of his app. <laughs> his app is kind of amazing. My, I think my producer is actually clicking on it right now. Oh, do I still have... Do I, Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, uh, knowing that, that these are people who are able to work in a lot of different mediums, like, how how much of a sell was it to, to go to, to these pop artists or to the people who, who've been working with them and be like, we're going to do a coffee label? <laughs> like, it seems like, especially in his case, uh, because of the app and some of the other things, it's like, how... How easy is it to to convince somebody that that this was a was going to be an interesting like artistic pursuit? Because well, you got you some know, really cool I mean, stuff you know, for it. When, when it's one artist talking to another, sort of all of you just take the gloves off and you you know you sit down and, and the people understand. The people understand taking risks. People understand what it might be to to not do what's expected. I think that's kind of one of the pleasures of being an artist that you can drop your preconceived notion and explore something that maybe uh, could make you uncomfortable. There's, that's okay. So, so if it applies with a business overlay, that's still okay. Um, we, artists are risk takers as a rule, and uh, I've been lucky to find myself among a lot of artists in my 
that's a, that's a fairly generic statement that probably speaks more than the coffee, but I think it's accurate. And then just a, another quick question about, about the artist. When it, you, you mentioned the collaboration with Scott Snyder a, a couple of times. Well, both of the Snyders. But you did get him to actually do, uh, do one of those as well. Was that, that seems like, uh, we talked a little bit about that, but it hadn't been released the, the first time we talked. What, um, <laughs> I think people might have expected it to be like a Spartan or a zombie or something. <laughs> what, was the, what was the eventual design? And, um, and if you can talk just for a minute about him as as uh, as a visual artist outside of, out of film as well. Well, look, I mean, with Zach, I, did he make a coffee label? I don't remember him making one. This is a while ago, because this is like almost two years ago, or a little bit more than two years ago now that we talked, and we were talking about, I think maybe you were just talking about him maybe getting into the process, or that he was working on one. Yeah, I don't, maybe I can just, but you know, I can certainly speak to that as a visual artist, obviously most folks see him as a filmmaker, but there isn't a day that goes by on set where he isn't also making magnificent, thoughtful, poetic Polaroids with a with an old land camera. And he's got a new Leica monochrome now that's making incredible photographs with. The man is a genius across many, many media, and uh, visually is a hero. Like, he is, it's really, really neat. And I and I get, a lot of times, I'll see him grab his land camera and he's gonna go make a photograph or something. I'll follow behind him and photograph him making his photograph. So it's just a way of adding a layer and a meta moment. Um, and it's always a treat to watch him pull out the film and, and watch him process and take a look at what how he sees the world. Uh, similarly with Larry Fox, he too has got his icon on set all the time. So, so the three of us, as very visual thinkers, are still getting very different images, and I admire what they're doing, as I hope they might like what I'm doing. So it's, uh, it's really fun to be in that. It's inspiring, right? If, you're, if you spend all day in the world for rest of artistic endeavor, then it might be hard to find yourself motivated to do it yourself. But when you're surrounded by folks with the talent of a Larry and a Zach, then that eye gets raised up by that. Uh, that's really important. And one of the one of the treats that has me returning to film set, having started off a you know, brutal exhaustion of Watchmen, I go back now, knowing full well it's going to be demanding, but that the inspiration that comes from being surrounded by such creative people trumps it all. That's inc it's incredible. I mean, just kind of in close, I think this will be the, the last question. Um, how close do you get to the, the to the actors in, in all this process? I mean, obviously it was early on, but were you, I mean, this is asking you just as a person outside of, of, of now having potentially worked with them. Were you surprised at all the, the hate that the casting announcement got for, the, for, for Batman, for for Ben Affleck, like, it seemed as though like the internet exploded that weekend, but... Yeah, to be honest, I, I travel too much out of the country and otherwise, that I don't pay much attention to the, the nitty-gritty. All casting decisions, I have complete faith in the folks making those decisions. Uh, I think the track record he gave speaks to his, his vision and his talent. So let's not get carried away there, folks. I think, um, I think it's 
it's exciting and it's fun and it's the stuff of nerddom. So let the debate continue, right? Like it's, 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 it's an artistic medium, right? It has huge commercial implications, but let's allow for the artistic medium of film to have subjective interpretation. There's going to be people who love it, there's going to be people who hate it. It doesn't, it doesn't make you a bad person if you disagree. Let's, let's enjoy this process. Let's, let's take our excitement and, and channel it towards, I don't know, towards smiles instead of sort of ugly debate. Uh, I, but I don't get carried away. And I, I have complete faith. Here, here. Yeah. I think we're, let's not, if we're talking about Superman and Batman and, and Wonder Woman, etc. right? We're not talking about, and, and that's all fun and enjoyable. And, and Precisely, story yeah. Line, if storylines start to get close to home and have political relevance and all that stuff, that's, that's great. But in the end, it is a realm of fantasy and entertainment that should be enhancing our life, not, not, not an excuse to, you know, take someone who disagrees with you down. Well, we are so happy to, to have you uh, on the show, and you have lifted us up. You've lifted our spirits on our uh, on our journey today. <laughs> All right. It's nice to know as I disappear on that for Well, thank you so much for your time. This is the last thing. This is how we, we start um, our interview segments, is just kind of a quick throw-to um, where you can introduce uh, yourself. So uh, in this case, it would be um, just uh, to say, hi, I'm Clay Enos, and you're listening to Kind of epic show. All right. So you just want me to do that right now? Mm hmm. This is Clay Enix. All right, ready? Yep. This is Clay Enix. Well, I'll give you a little pause so you can edit accordingly. This is Clay Enix, and you're listening to Kind of Epic Show. Clay, have I been time. have I been mispronouncing your your name the entire time that we've talked? <laughs> How have you been saying it? Enos or Enos? I was saying Enos. Yeah, that's fine. I, I go both. So I'll say, I'll say it your way just for, for that. No! <laughs> it's your name! Say it the correct way! <laughs> Honestly, I say it both ways because a lot of times if you have to spell it, it's easier to have the O in there. But my dad's a penis, so it's a little... He likes to write limerick, so it's a... It's a much better ride with Enos than it is with Enos. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the lead into the segment. <laughs> Boy, and many a fine limerick did we have after that, but uh, unfortunately you won't be hearing that segment of our interview with uh, Clay Enos, <laughs> whose name I was mispronouncing for only an hour. <laughs> yeah, that happened. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed that segment of Kind of Epic Show. Um, this is coming right on the heels of the amazing um, set um, photographs um, by uh, his partner, uh, Zack Snyder. Um, we also have well, got some When you say partner... It sounds bad. Oh, does it sound... Oh, yeah. whatever. No, I mean, just partner in crime. Okay, or in there this you case, go. Partner in... in cine, not cinematic crime. That would be mean. Partner in cinematic Ooh, awesomeness. Some people would say that. Oh, but those Andrew people are wrong. That. Those people are wrong in this case. Andrew we, would say that. Although some would argue that the best part of Sucker Punch is Clay's photos, because that was an awesome book. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks! Thank you, Clay. <laughs> Yes. We, uh, did you? Why didn't you just hit the space bar? I don't know. Oh. They don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, well, anyway, we just wanted to give you, um, obviously, a heads up as to what's coming. Um, we just did, obviously, this amazing interview. We hope you really enjoyed it. Um, we've got our review of The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which, which came out already, earlier this yeah, week. So that's already out. We're up on Monday. This is Wednesday, and we're actually posting this the day that we're doing these intros. Mm -hmm. uh, we've also got, um, uh, on Friday, um, we will be doing our Henson episode. Um, finally. Finally. Um, we actually, talked about it. If you don't mind, um, I think we might as well just throw in our other Henson interview we did from C2E2. Which was? Um, we talked to Joanna Estep, who is an Eisner, I believe an Eisner nominee now, but she's doing the Fantastic Four minis, the one shot that's upcoming. Um, she's, she did the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Um, she worked on a tale of, I believe she did some work on a tale of sand for the, like, coloring or line art. Um, and she did also the, um, uh, the Fraggle Rock. She did a lot of the Fraggle stuff. So she, we talk a lot about the Fraggles. And so okay. that'd be a cool thing to add. So we've got our Henson special on Friday. Um, we've got our C2E2 recap show on, uh, when is that, Monday or Wednesday of next week? Oh, uh, that's up to you. It's going to be next week. <laughs> well, we're having three episodes again next week, yeah. like we're, we're doing this week. So, guys, just be prepared for that. Um, that's a lot of epic. One of them will be our C2E2 wrap-up episode, and then Paul Jenkins as well. And then on Friday will be our Godzilla review. So mm -hmm. just be on the lookout for all that coming up here soon. You know what it is? It's it's the fact we had to squeeze in a lot of epic content because we have a giant monster movie, you know. And we're kind of making a making it up to you guys for having two weeks off. Yeah. So next time we'll announce it. We'll do like a five minute segment. We'll just be like, "Hey guys, we're not gonna do anything this week." Well, that wasn't intentional. It just sort of happened. Yeah. Well, that first week we did have your video. If you want to promote it. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, we do also have some content out there. I'm working on the, um, the script or the transcript from that. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, we have um, a panel video that we presented. or also working on the Charlene Harris uh, panel that we recorded. No, no, it's edited. I just have to export it. Yeah, it I mean, those are both forever. the only, I think we were both the only people to record those panels. So yeah. some exclusive C2E2 content. They didn't live stream those panels for whatever reason. Um and so that's that's some really good stuff. I mean, on our panel, we had some great comic artists that you will know. Seven Eisner nominations between Ramon Perez and Gene Ha. Um, five Eisner wins. Um, Gail Simone, writer of Batgirl, of course, um, as well as Red Sonia and Tomb Raider right now. Um, formerly The Movement, sadly. Rest in peace. And then also uh, we had Marjorie Liu of uh, Dark Wolverine, Doc N, uh, X-23, um, Wolverine and the X-Men and uh, Astonishing X-Men and like pretty much all X-Men. <laughs> also Black Widow and she just wrote she was the writer on that really awesome uh, uh, cartoon. Did uh, you watch it? Did I haven't, watch I've Black only Widow seen like Punisher? the I've saw the trailer and I'm sold. I've got it in my queue now. Oh. Is it on Netflix? I believe. Well I mean it's in my queue to watch it. Oh okay. <laughs> it's yeah. not in an actual queue. I think it does have streaming though because they stream a lot of the, the Marvel stuff. Yeah. It might not be up yet. They tend to wait a little while. Yeah. Anyways I'm David I'm Gabriel Canada, and you've been listening to Kind of Epic Show. Yeah, we're not professionals, we're just men giving opinions. What?